Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast, presented by FlickeringMyth.com. I'm your host, Court Dunn. Join us as we talk to writers about their work, their process, and what it means to be a writer. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash writer experience. Audible has over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Welcome to the Writer Experience Podcast. Today's guest is Murr from Impractical Jokers. Murr is also a best-selling writer and co-author of the novels Awakened and The Brink with Darren Wearmouth. You can see him on Impractical Jokers, season eight, every Thursday night on True TV, along with his friends, the comedy troupe Tenderloins, and his latest thriller, The Brink, is on sale now. Murr, welcome to the show. Hey guys, how are you? Thanks for having me. We're very excited to have you. I know we've got a somewhat shortened episode for this one, so we normally do a speed round we call a series of singly random questions. In this case, oh, I love it. we're only going to do that. So are you ready for the speed round? Yeah, dude, I am super ready. I'm, I'm great. I love these kind of things. <laughs> it's great. All right. So we're really excited to talk to you because you're both a comedian and a writer. Obviously, you focus on the writing side. We've never had a comedian on. So let's start with the first question, question number one. <laughs> Where are you in the world right now? I am in Atlantic City. The guys and I have uh, two shows tonight, the Bulgata. So I'm, uh, I'm in Atlantic City. We're getting ready for the show. Love it. And I know and you're I'm normally... not going to lie to you. I might also have a, a glass of vodka and tonic in my hands as well. <laughs> we are totally fine with that. So next question, number two. I'm going to read mm-hmm. a quote real quick. Murray and Wearmouth, latest The Brink is a white-knuckled roller coaster. The novel is chocked full of everything I love. Strange creatures, a world teetering on the edge, and heroes who I'd want at my side during any firefight. This isn't just a story hopped on steroids, but one injected with nitrous and blazing on all cylinders. Give me more. That's a quote from James Rollins, number one New York Times bestseller of The Crucible, talking about your novel, The Brink, which is, like I said, on sale now. Tell us about the book, because a lot of people know you as being on Impractical Jokers. Tell us about your involvement, the book, what's different about it, why should we buy it? I'll give you the the backstory for the whole thing. So 15 years ago, I spent a year of my life writing Awakened, the first book of the trilogy. And uh, it's like this action-packed thriller takes place in the subways in New York City. It's about like kind of creatures in the subway system and the mayor of New York trying to save his wife and uh, save the passengers that were on the train. And uh, at the end of a year, I sent it out to every publisher in New York. This is long before Impractical Jokers. And I couldn't get a single person to read it. It got returned to me unopened by every publisher. They wouldn't open the envelope because I don't have an agent or a manager. And then 15 years later, because of Jokers, I sent the same book, not a single word changed, out to HarperCollins, and they immediately bought the trilogy. And then Awakened hit number one on the international bestseller list. And uh, The Brink is a sequel. It takes place a year later. It's uh, very much about the mayor of New York City going up against the, uh, the, the secret arch architect of this whole disaster, the man who's kind of like the mastermind who's been orchestrating these creature attacks around the world, and he goes after him. And it is... Uh, it is even better than the first one, and we just hit the bestseller list last week for The Brink. It is uh, exciting and fun, and there's a couple of Joker's references in there for fans, so you'll, you'll laugh a few times, and it's got great heroes and villains. Love it. If you're listening, check that out. The next question, Impractical Jokers. Mm-hmm. It's on season eight. Season nine's coming up. During that time, you've obviously encountered a lot of challenging situations. <laughs> yeah, I would say so. What was the most challenging situation you've encountered on the show that you were able to overcome? Wow, so many great ones. <laughs> well, they, I'll, t- I'll tell you the most, one of the most recent ones. Last week, I got punished. I lost an episode, and it hasn't aired yet. It'll air in a few weeks. 
they brought me in front of this, to this technology conference where there was 800 people in the room. And the speaker before me, if you know tech, the speaker before me was Steve Wozniak, the co-founder of Apple with Steve Jobs, oh, wow. right? He was the speaker before me, and then I spoke after him. So it's a packed room of people. And what the audience didn't know, from their point of view, they couldn't see that underneath the microphone, there were two tubes. One tube had helium in it. The other tube had sulfur hexafluoride, which is kind of like anti-helium. It makes you sound like Darth Vader. So as I'm giving a speech that I'd never read before in my life, my voice is going up or down or up and down, depending on when the guy said to breathe helium or sulfur. And it was one of the most embarrassing moments of my life. <laughs> wow. Are you a Star Wars fan? I love Star Wars. I love Star Trek too. Love I'm it. a sucker for it all. I have a wall of lightsabers in my apartment. <laughs> have you ever used them? I use them daily to defend my house <laughs> against the, the perpetrators. All right. Next question. Tell us about the writing that goes on in the show. Like I said, we haven't talked to comedians before in the show. Obviously, mm -hmm. a big part of your role is improv, but many mm -hmm. of the jokes are set up, planned ahead of time. What does that look like? I'm assuming there's a team of people that are involved in the jokes and the writing of those. You know, the show, Jokers is essentially an improv show in disguise because it's very, very hard to sell an improv show to a network. Right. You have to kind of wrap it in all this other BS, that, but really, if it's hard, it's just improv because we, we are an improv group. That's our background. And truly, we have no idea who's going to walk into a store, what they're going to say, how they're going to react to a situation. So it's very much improvised and in the moment. What we do plan is the challenges. We have to figure out what we're going to do there. So we have a, a bunch of our friends or a team of like comedy producers that will pitch us ideas for challenges. And we, we come up with a lot of the challenges, like you know what the actual scenario is. And then we see what happens. And we go from there. The punishments are trickier because the punishments are so personal for the four of us that uh, it is very much, even to this day, the four of us kind of figuring out how to punish each other in a way that's steeped in our history as a, our friendship for 30 years and in a way that will particularly embarrass that guy. But at, at its heart, the show is very much an improv show. Moving on to the next question, going back to your novel and the process of writing, if you had to describe the entire process and secret to writing a novel in one single sentence, it can be a run on. What would you say? Whew. I don't want to curse. I'll, I'll say. <laughs> Hard, hard as F. <laughs> First one, man, took me a year to write, but I didn't know how to write a novel. I mean, I went to school, I have a degree in English from, uh, and writing from Georgetown, but I, so I always wanted to write a thriller, but I never realized the amount of research it would take to create an entire world like that from scratch. Now that the world is created, it's, it's, it's def the second book was definitely easier, but also I have less time. So I had to maximize my time and be good at it, you know, be effective at it. The third book we started writing, uh, a few weeks ago, and that's, that's proceeding nicely too. But it, it is hard as F. It really is. It's the amount of research you need to think to do, and the amount of, you know, I think a lot of the work of writing a book is, is logic. You have to think through the logic of it, and why people react the way they do, and why they wouldn't react the way they do, and, and figuring out in advance those logic problems, I've learned, saves you a ton of headaches uh, when you're writing the novel. Next question is completely random. If you had to sell your soul to the devil, what would you sell it for? Uh, you know, maybe a unlimited Metro card. Good I mean, those choice. things are like, uh, you know, 150 bucks. Like, I got an <laughs> unlimited monthly Metro card. 150 bucks <laughs> and, and only going up uh, in value. Guys, my soul ain't worth much. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first. Don't even bother. Next question. Looking back at your career, what's one piece of advice you'd give to aspiring authors and or comedians or author comedians? Uh, you know, let's see. I'd say... If there's one thing Jokers has taught the guys and I and, and uh, Awaken and the Brink has taught me, it's don't stop. Don't stop. Listen, I mean, there's so many barriers of entry, so many walls that are imaginary that are keeping you from succeeding. And uh, I, you just, just don't quit. Don't quit. Keep working. Keep getting better at it. And, and don't stop doing it. 
that's the first thing. The second thing is um, what I found in throughout every part of my career is I guess don't let other people limit or define your success for you. You know, like uh, when I first uh, said I'm going to start pitching this thriller, people are like, well, what do you mean you're a comedian? Well, who cares? I, you know, as, as Walt Whitman said, I'm large. I contain multitudes. Like, do everything. Do everything there is to do. So don't quit. Get better at something. If you love something, keep doing it. And don't let others limit or define who you are or your success. That's it. Next question. How do you combat writer's block? Are there activities, foods, distractions, things you do to get yourself back in the, in the vibe to write? <sighs> Uh, I don't really get writer's block. Uh, you know, the idea, I think ideas just kind of keep coming, but I think it's, um, I eat a lot. I, I junk food eat, not, not junk food. I, 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 I do this thing where I go up to the fridge, I open it, I just stare at it and there's not, nothing new ever appears, but I'm hoping a new idea will come and inevitably a new idea comes. <laughs> if you could take any writer living or dead to any fast food restaurant, which restaurant, which writer, why? Which restaurant? I mean, we're going to go to uh, red lobster because why not? <laughs> it's awesome. <laughs> I feel like uh, I feel like Truman Capote would be a blast Ooh. to take out to take out to dinner. Don't you think? No one's ever said that before. Really? No one said Truman God, Capote. Man, like, what a fascinating character! Just 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 the man himself would be. Forget about his writing, but the man himself would be fascinating to to sit down for two hours with. Do you think he'd like Red Lobster? No, <laughs> <laughs> not at all. But I mean, those Cheddar Bay biscuits are, are to die for. So who knows? Absolutely. Next question. If you could ask a question to one of our next writer guests, what would you say? What do you want to know? You know? Oh, this is a good question. I love this one. Hmm. Who is your favorite fictional villain and why? Great. Which leads me to my next question. Who is your favorite fictional villain and why? <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Very good. You know, well, I, I come from a world of movies and TV, so... I mean, I think Darth Vader is such a great character. Man, oh man. Or Hannibal Lecter is a great character. Man, you know? Yeah, um, I'd say the, one of those two. There seems to be a Darth Vader theme in this episode. <laughs> yeah. The next question. As someone who is on TV and famous yeah. and known for pranks and jokes, I imagine people you don't know sometimes like to prank you. What's the yes. most awkward prank someone that you don't know has tried to pull on you? The most awkward? Oh, oh, it backfired badly. It, it was a, a waiter in a restaurant, and the manager decided to decided to for dessert. I ordered a chocolate, like a molten chocolate kind of, you know, cake, whatever. And they brought over what looked like that, but it was just a pile of coffee grinds made into the shape of a chocolate cake. And it did, and they served it to the whole table, and everybody spit it out. And it back the joke backfired. It just wasn't well thought out. That was a bad one. What if I told you this podcast isn't even a real podcast? It could be. <laughs> right? Oh, that would right? suck. That would suck for both of us. Because I hope you guys cause, <laughs> man, do something with your lives. Because really you guys are fun. Thank you so much. It is a real podcast. <laughs> We've got uh, many episodes. Check them out. What if I um, told you this is actually Sal on the phone right now? It's not actually her. Oh, <laughs> my God. That would be amazing. All right. Ready? So the next question. What's the end goal for you? You're both a comedian and a writer. I feel like the end goal for all of us is death. I feel like we're all going to end at the same goal. <laughs> you know, we're all going to die. Uh, that's, and that's the final destination, so if you will. But uh, I, my, there is no end goal. It's just to keep doing things that I love. To keep, uh, I, I want to sell the Awakening trilogy as a movie or TV series. I'm creating this kind of like uh, we sold a couple more books as well. Beyond Awakened, that'll be uh, we'll be making it about soon. All thrillers. Um, so in the next two years, we have I think a total of five or six books coming out. 
and uh, and the idea, and they're all kind of these kind of all very very different, but all these kind of very unique thrillers that are very movie worthy or TV worthy. Uh, so I think that's the idea. I'm creating this kind of like uh, thriller IP company, intellectual property company that creates lots and lots of new projects that I can then sell because of my background in both TV and film. So that's what I'm doing. I'm creating this uh, kind of like new thriller company in addition to doing Jokers and, and uh, the Jokers movie and all that kind of stuff and touring. You know, it's kind of a great combination of it's, it's all different creative outlets. Uh, so it's, it's very engaging creatively. That's awesome. We could, in a separate episode someday, have you on to promote that because that's a really exciting thing and something we talk cool. about on the podcast as far as going from writing a novel to getting made into a movie. Um, that's, that's my background, right? I, I ran development for a TV company for 12 years, you know, and we pitched Jokers through my job. So my job was wow. literally for 12 years to create and sell TV shows. So when I write, I write with the intention always of then pitching it because uh, uh, really what I'm doing, what I am is a sales guy, right? I like selling stuff. So that's, uh, I would love to talk about that one day. Second to last question regarding development. From a development exec's perspective, what advice would you give to writers who are hoping to come up with an idea that could be pitched? What's your like one thing you would suggest? Well, you know, the lesson that when I, but I wish I knew in my 20s what I knew when I eventually got a job in development, but uh, which is that companies live or die on ideas. So all these imaginary barriers of entry for you that, oh, how do I get into pitch a co- production company, this, this, and this, those are non-existent because they, they need your ideas. That's the first thing. I wish I understood that in my 20s. Second, there has to be an audience for your idea. If, if you write in a vacuum and have no idea whether it's a marketable, sellable idea, you know, I, I don't write uh, kind of highfalutin, you know, literary books. I, I, I write stuff that is exciting to read. I write stuff that is very, very, very marketable. Like it, it's just, it, you can't put the book down, you know, not so much like Pulp Fiction, but it's, it's there. It's very in, immensely readable. The idea there is that it's a combination of stuff that's really compelling, that you're, you're creating stuff that's really compelling, but also it's volume of work too. In TV development, it's a numbers game. So, you know, my first, my first year in uh, running development for a TV company, my boss at the time would insist that I pitch 25 new television show ideas every Friday. So every week I had to create oh, wow. 25 new shows and pitch them. And the idea there is that your first thousand ideas suck. It's your thousand and one idea that's actually unique and different and novel. And that's the one you actually sell. The lesson there is that it's not just quality. It also is a, a numbers game. So like, why am I pushing so hard to sell lots of books? And then now we have five that they'll be coming out in the next, literally the next 18 months. The reason is it's not just the quality of the book and how exciting it is and engaging it is. It's also the quantity. You have to be, you have to become a force that is like, okay, this guy can create it. This girl can create it. They, they are creators. They are, they're marketable and their ideas are, are sellable. And, uh, and, you know, it helps coming in with a package too. So you come in not just like what I bring to the equation is, not just my development background, but I bring my my audience to the background to to the to the table too, right? The Joker's fan base, and that's real. So you know, grow your fan base, create a lot of stuff, make it good, and uh, and start pitching it. Love it. The last question, drum roll, please hand me the envelope. <laughs> You're sliding me the envelope. I'm excited. I'm excited. All right. I'm scared. now because this is audio only. You can't see me unfolding envelopes. I'm going to describe that I'm opening it now. <laughs> Did you have fun today? Today? Yes, with us. Guys, if I didn't have fun, I would have hung up like 20 minutes ago. Of course (laughs) I did. Is there anything that we didn't ask you or that you wanted to say that you haven't said or that maybe you just want to put out there in the world based on how you're feeling? Maybe the the vodka, you know, it's getting you feeling nice. 
One thing I'll add is uh, scientists think that the core of Jupiter might be a solid diamond. That's all I'll say because it's carbon. And Jupiter is, if it was 10 times bigger, it would have become a star, a second star in our, our solar system, and it would have ignited. But it's not. It's not quite massive enough. But as a result, there's so much immense pressure on the core of Jupiter and carbon. What happens with pressure and carbon? Diamonds. So who knows? I'll leave you with that thought. You could have the biggest diamond in the universe, well, in our solar system, right there, only a few planets away. You've got to mine that thing. That's the company. That's the next company. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. Got to get there. Get Elon Musk. <laughs> that stuff. Well, thank you, man. I really, really, really appreciate you taking the time. This was a quick one, but we do appreciate it. And I'm happy to hear the insights that you had. And we're excited about, you know, obviously, Practical Jokers in your books, but the company that you referenced. So hopefully, in the future, we can find out more about that. I think that would be helpful. Thanks, man. I appreciate the time. It was awesome. We have a lot of writers on this podcast. Do you like what writers write? Do you like free stuff? Well, Audible is offering a free audiobook download for listeners of the Writer Experience Podcast with a free 30-day trial to give you the opportunity to check out their service. I recently downloaded James Joyce's Ulysses for my commutes into the city, while our producer Harry, who may or may not exist, has been enjoying J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit. To download your free audiobook today, go to audibletrial.com slash writerexperience. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash writerexperience for your free audiobook. The Flickering Myth Podcast is a source for all of the weekly entertainment news that we could possibly be bothered to talk about. Tune in every Tuesday for a roundtable discussion featuring a host of Flickering Myth writers and contributors. You can find us on all your favorite podcatchers as well as right here at flickeringmyth.com, part of the Flickering Myth Podcast Network. Hi, I'm Alan Christian. I'm Gerald James. And I'm Lacey Day. And we host the Four Color Film Podcast. What do we do at the Four Color Film Podcast, Gerald? We watch and dissect every comic book-based film. Lacey, do you still like being here? Yeah, it's really great. <laughs> <laughs> you can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, and Spotify, and wherever else they have good podcasts and podcasts like these. <laughs> you sound like a kidnapping victim. <laughs> you can find us also on the Flickering Myth Podcast Network at Flickering Myth. Dot com, along with other great shows. Check us out and check them out too. Thank you. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. Hell Zane. It's time for our segment where we have a quick check in with some of our favorite writers. Today's guest is Tim Woods. Tim is a professional game master who was recently featured in Wired. He's also a writer, teacher, bard, and storyteller. Tim, how's it going? It's, it's been great. It's fantastic. Actually, I was just uh, at a friend's wedding yesterday um, and uh, getting to hang out with uh, some of the friends that were some of the initial people that I ever played D&D with and any kind of RPGs. So kind of like my, uh, my Stranger Things group, as it were, like the friends that I would, we would hang out in the basement and just play for like six to eight hours, like long, long sessions. So, so it was great seeing the, my old gaming group and old gaming friends again. And were you always the dungeon master, so to speak? How did that kind of come about that you were chosen for that storytelling role? I would say not always. We did have instances where some of us would take turns and shift around, but primarily 
I was always the one really, really excited about RPGs. We always would play games together. Risk is a popular one. We had a lot of board games kind of that we would go to as classics. But like whenever it was RPGs, I would always be the one kind of pushing for it and jumping into that kind of game mastering role as often as I could pretty much. And how did you, when you were first getting started, how did you first go about learning the process the first time? Did you read books or just make it all up? It's interesting because I think of RPGs as being a type of game and a hobby that really there are these amazing books. And that is, in fact, how I learned. I kind of found these documents online that were introductions, and those kind of led me to the books. And I'm one of the people who did kind of pick up these books and parse their way through them. And my brother was there to help me, and we would bounce these rules back and forth to kind of like learn them together. But I argue that the books are not really the way that most people learn RPGs. Most people learn RPGs from other people. And so I kind of served that function for a lot of my friends of learning the rules and being able to like figure out which ones we needed to know and which ones we could knock out of the way and not worry about right now and kind of jump into the game and start having fun. And that's kind of what led me into the job that I have now is like just learning like how could we cut through the stuff we don't need to worry about and start having fun with this game as soon as possible. You mentioned the books that most people learn through other people. The books are dense with information. There's lots of numbers, rules, characters, monsters, situations, these kind of things. But there's just so much info in there. Do you ever just dive into the books and read all of them? What's the value in all that information? I think what I love about the books is that they do have often so much information that it is overwhelming if you were to try to tackle it all at once. But then once you have start, start having fun with a lot of these RPGs, you really value all of that extra um, material and all of that extra, whether it's fluff or really crunchy stats and stuff, it usually lends a lot of that 3D nature to the game. And I wouldn't say that they have too much of it by any means, but I do think it can be very intimidating to new players if they don't have that friend to introduce them. I think of an example being the Star Wars RPGs in particular. When we were growing up, we used to play the Saga edition of the Star Wars RPG. And that game had a lot of rules. I think if my friends had looked at that book initially, it wouldn't have seemed like a very appealing game. But when I kind of went to them and the game was modular enough that you could really build a lot of different characters, all the extra rules made it very, very flexible and you could do a lot of cool character concepts. So I'd go to my friends and be like, if you could be anybody in the Star Wars universe, who would you want to be? And once I heard their answers and heard what they were excited about, I could usually build that character with these kind of very amazing, very intricate rules that that game gave me. So I loved how complicated it was, but I definitely needed to be the facilitator. And I think our Star Wars games were some of the most fun and exciting ones that me and my friends had growing up. Was it challenging writing a Star Wars RPG, given that, you know, those stories are so specific and everyone knows them? It's a vast world, but almost the challenge that Disney is facing after the current mm -hmm. sequel trilogy. You're writing into an established yes. universe, kind of. Honestly, I would say for RPGs in particular, this is very interesting, I'd say it's exactly the opposite. I think when I can write into an established universe, when I can ask people the, the, the question, who do, would you be in the Star Wars universe? And somebody who's seen enough of the movies, enjoyed enough of the media, that they've thought about that. They've, they've probably been like, nah, I would be a Jedi or I wouldn't be a Jedi. I would want to be this character or somebody like that character or a combination of these two characters. I think when you have um, a set of tropes to work from, that's usually what helps 
people to dive into RPGs, when they have a concept of who they would want to be in this universe. And so people can kind of dive in very easily and I think find the game much more approachable when it is an established universe, actually. It's also so many uh, RPGs are in established universes and why the initial RPGs were kind of this uh, D&D was really an attempt to recreate a, a Middle-earth type of experience. It was very uh, about participation in established literary tropes and uh, archetypes. And, and so it, uh, there is this recursive relationship with literature and all other kinds of media that uh, RPGs kind of invite this, uh, almost inherently, this jump into an established world of some kind or another, even when it's totally new uh, original content, I would argue. <laughs> You mentioned that you were meeting up with a friend or recently met up with a friend who you started playing RPGs with early. How has the storytelling process for you changed from when you first started out as a game master to now? I would say that what's funny to me is that people have so much fun. Whatever age you engage with people, people have so much fun with RPGs and it brings out a silly side of people. And I think that's one thing that maybe not all game masters are prepared for is the idea that inherently you're going to have people come to your game with very, very silly attitudes and that that will come at all ages. It gives people permission to be a little irreverent. And I think that playing with a lot of my friends growing up and one friend in particular who I saw yesterday and got to spend some time with, I recall vividly the first time I sat down and played D&D with him. He just wanted to spend time. He just wanted to hang out and have a good time. And I was like, no, we're going to play D&D. The other guys couldn't make it, so it's just going to be us one-on-one -on -one kind of building your character. You're going to love it. It's going to be great. He wasn't interested in character creation. He wasn't interested really in D&D at all. He just wanted to hang out. So I, I was asking him all these questions. We established you have, okay, a dragonborn paladin. This is your character. This is what they're good at. Here's your abilities. And he's nodding along. I'm like, and what's your character's name? And he said, well, my character's name is Nogar. And I said, wow, I'm actually really impressed. That's a really cool name. It's really... um." got that kind of Celtic ring to it. It's got a very uh, uh, medieval feel. You really dove into the... Fa I'm really proud of you, dude, that you're really starting to engage this game. And he starts to look more and more embarrassed as I go on and on. And then he just blurts out finally, it's Dragon Backwards! And I pause for a minute and <laughs> just flip toward Dragon Backwards. And that it was a joke from the start. And so I always tell people that story because a D&D &D character's name can be whatever you want. There's no wrong answer to that. There's no wrong way to approach this game. And the truth is that we played with Nogar, the Dragonborn Paladin, and that was one of the most fun games that I can remember from my youth of D&D. &D. And like, that was how my friend wanted to play at that time. And that was how uh, I learned later a lot of people love to play D&D, &D, it turns out. And uh, I think uh, I learned a lot playing with my friends growing up about different uh, gaming styles. Yeah. So he flipped the word dragon to no guard, specifically talking about names. We haven't really talked about name creation for writing before. I think it's a really interesting mm -hmm. topic. When you come up with your character names, how do you come up with them? How do you keep them fresh, unique at the same time? Not so based in this world that we come from, and also not choosing names that may have been taken. It's a, a really good question. I will say that I do have an approach to this that I would specifically describe as a kind of constructionist, wherein I'm kind of looking at the D&D world I'm creating very much as not, I'm necessarily trying to create the best game or the best story, but I'm creating something that is going to feel real. It's going to create verisimilitude. And in particular, when it comes to names, 
I'm big on the idea that like sometimes names are boring. Sometimes sometimes people are just this name. Sometimes people are just and like sometimes names fit into very easy stereotypical uh, categories. Other times they don't. I like to randomly generate elements of names to kind of keep that chaos element. But I'm always trying to think of what would someone in in this place and time and culture and region and race and all of the factors that are going on with this person, what would their name be? And use that as a way to convey something about the universe that these people are in. So if I'm running Eberron, which is a bit more of a modern twist, a steampunk kind of D&D world, I have much more license to put modern twists on names and get playful with the kind of ways in the modern world that people modify their names and use nicknames and things like that. And I'll convey that about that world through the names. And I'm always trying to to keep that realistic in some ways. But there's also the element of I need to keep these names memorable. And sometimes I listen to other DMs who have these like really snazzy, like superhero sounding names. They're thinking these characters are part of a story and I need these players to really remember these awesome names and titles and very distinctive names that have a ring to them. And I do sometimes think that I could err more on the side of keeping things cinematic and exciting, but there's always kind of a balance to be struck, I suppose. Naming is is a weird thing and I don't always know where all of them come from. And staying within that theme of naming, when you worked on that Star Wars RPG, Star Wars obviously has very specific kind of naming conventions, Luke Skywalker, Lando Calrissian. Mm. Did you, when you were coming up with those characters, come up with names that you tried to fit into that world? Okay. So I will say, yes, absolutely. I would try to, I'll say, as you pointed out, there are certain naming conventions. And then there's the kind of, you can almost convey uh, something about a character by the way you name them. So if somebody has like a shorter name or like, a droid with a wackier name is going to become a more important character or something. The more fun you can have with their name, the more inherently you have made that droid a bigger character because their name is fun to say. That's the Star Wars criteria for that the droid is going to become a playful, fun, comic relief character or something. And there's kind of like the, the Kelvin Voss or like blah, blah, Doog or something like that. There's always these kind of very uh, multi-syllable to single-syllable n- naming structures. And I would definitely go back to those sometimes in my Star Wars games. Well, Tim, thank you for giving us that update and talking all things RPGs. And I didn't think we'd go so deep into the naming conventions, but this is fun. And again, like I said, we haven't talked about that before in the podcast. So thank you, man. And um, hopefully we'll have you back again soon. Excellent. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. All right. Good luck with everything. And we'll talk to you soon. Absolutely. You as well. Take care. And thank you to our listeners. We hope to see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to The Writer Experience. If you enjoyed the episode today, please leave a rating, a review, and a comment on iTunes. You can also check us out on Instagram at Writer Experience and Twitter and Facebook at Writer EXP. The Writer Experience is a Samurai Dinosaur production. Copyright 2019. All rights reserved. Music by Kevin McLeod.